And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sydney Wildsmith. Floods are nothing new. People have been struggling to higher ground for as long as anyone can remember. As hopefully the waters crest, and the good news is that the current levees are holding, it's going to take a long time to get things back to normal. But what about the small creatures? How do they deal with floods? And as summer heats up, how do animals deal with the blistering heat? That's coming up when your Voice of the Earth continues here on the Wild Side News. The river's on the rise Swift and gentle like the breeze It swallows everything but sky Suffocates the trees. Here comes the water. Should I struggle or give in? And does it even matter if I sing? Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Well, it looks as if we're in for another record weather year, 2008, as we watch the media present us ongoing images of this extraordinary flooding along the tributaries of the Mississippi River. Literally thousands and thousands of people across the, the Midwest are impacted once again. This is the new Katrina, and it's weather-related and so a lot of people are suggesting that perhaps this is an indication of the effects of climate change. The hard part about all of this is there are lots of people who are dramatically impacted, and those people out in the Midwestern states who are going through this right now, it's almost like I don't really know what to say. It's real tough to watch as the floodwaters come in and take out your home and take out your community. We've been through this before, but each time it's real for those people up to their armpits in water. It's really tough on we humans because we invest so much in our possessions and our home and our way of life. But as well, floodwaters affect virtually all the living forms around we human communities. And that's what we're going to take a look at today in our first segment as we talk to some experts about how flooding affects the small creatures and the, and the aquatic communities. What happens to them? How do they deal with this? In the second segment, eventually the waters are going to recede, and in some places there are no waters. The heat of summer already in many cases has been here, but I have the sense that this is going to be a hot summer. We just went through a very hot phase here in San Diego, and of course what happens here then, you can just watch it across the nation. So look out, folks, there's a heat wave coming. But again, the question is, what do the wild creatures do? How do they handle this? And that's what we're going to be looking at in our second segment. So stay with us here on the Wild Side News as we really focus on the effects that that floods and heat have on the wild creatures because they, too, have to deal with these natural disasters and natural realities. 
But I thought before we get into that, we might cover a few topics that are making the news these days. Oil prices continue to bobble around and typically are bubbling up. It's a crude reality that's impacting us. And this despite the fact that OPEC recently has committed to produce 200,000 additional barrels of oil per day, which actually, if you think about it, is nothing. It will make no difference. And unfortunately, these increased oil prices are being felt in many ways. We're all feeling the pinch almost all the time. It hurts to go to the gas station. Here in San Diego, we're looking at $4.80, $4.75 a gallon all the time for regular gas. One of the difficult aspects of this is that this becomes the cause celeb for a new way of thinking about energy independence. As you listen to politicians, now the word is that we're going to drill our way out of this. It's amazing to hear what's happening. Energy independence is now being touted as going after all the resources here in the United States. It's all our fault. Those we environmentalists, again, have done it all wrong, although we've been talking about it for the last, oh, 30 years, suggesting that this day would come, and if we used our intelligence and began to really address this, we could avoid this. But no, um, here we are, and of course, we are the ones who are standing in the way. So there's a lot of pressure now, and the president has suggested that we remove the 30-year ban on offshore oil drilling, and exploration, and I fear that's just the beginning. I was listening to C-SPAN this morning and heard a Texas congressman talking about that when you look at the amount of pollution on the shorelines, he had a chart, and he was saying that, I'm not going to get these exactly correct, but like 56% of the oil pollution along the shoreline is due to nature. Yep, it's Mother Nature again. And then 37% was due to recreational boating, and about 6% was due to ocean-going vessels, and ultimately, he said, 2% was due to oil spills. Probably his statistics are correct. But what he failed to discuss was the fact that if we talked about the percentage of catastrophic oil incidents along the ocean, those numbers would be totally turned around. I can't think of a single incident where Mother Nature has caused catastrophic oil damage along the shorelines, nor can I recall a time when recreational boating has caused catastrophic oil damage. But certainly oil spills in various forms have probably represented about 98% of the catastrophic damage along the shore. People whose livelihood depends on beaches and shorelines know that when you find your beach is covered in tar and all the wild creatures, the birds and otters and others, covered in goo, that's different than the uh, kind of ongoing oil that Mother Nature may be creating. But anyway, the point is, watch out, folks, and become activated because the pressure to open up offshore oil is going to increase. Along with that comes a call for us to drill our way out of this situation. I was listening to CNBC, the financial network, and there was a talking head, and he had some people talking about the current status of oil and whether or not speculation was the cause for the high increase in the oil versus just uh, the markets. And he had this mantra that was drill, drill, drill. We're going to drill our way out of this, although almost anybody who knows anything about this knows that You start drilling, it's going to take probably 8 or 10 years before actually that comes online. And you know what? That just isn't going to make a difference uh, dramatically in the price of oil right now, price of gasoline. 
And the truth is much of the high cost of oil is due strictly to, to speculation. Large-scale investors, now your institutional investors, are in, taking portions of their portfolio and investing in oil futures and as well investing in the indexes. That is to say that they, they, they invest in the value of the oil index and they make money if it goes up or down. And they want it to go up. And so to a large degree, the, what we're paying for right now is due to investors and speculators. Many of us know that already. But we have to keep this in mind that we're really being impacted by something very unnatural, something other than the usual laws of supply and demand. There are things we can do, and it's amazing how simple some of this can be. Over the weekend, I took a journey up north about 130 miles on the quest to get a really good deal on a new piece of electronic gear. I don't usually take journeys like that, but this was such a good deal I couldn't pass it up. And I thought this would be a perfect time to experiment to see to what degree driving more slowly could impact fuel efficiency. So on the way up, I drove normally, which which actually meant here in San Diego, Southern California, on the highways, that's pretty much 80 and above. And on the way up, then 130 miles, I got about uh, 22 miles per gallon. It cost me $32. On the way back, we agreed that we would hold our speed to 60 miles an hour to see what might happen. My gas mileage went from 22 to 32 miles per gallon just by slowing down to 60 miles per hour. I was quite honestly amazed that there would be that much of a difference. That was a 40% increase in gas mileage. There's a real huge lesson there to be learned. Slow down and save not only the country but the world. We drive too fast, and these cars really don't function efficiently at those speeds. Because these cars have been made to maintain high speeds like that, when you get back to 60 miles per hour, they're just cruising along. This is easy. The increase in gas mileage is radical. Instead of spending $32, I spent 17 That makes a huge difference. Try it. When I was first encouraged to drive at 60 miles an hour, I thought, no, that's kind of a pain. I don't like to be a, a troublesome on the freeway. But you know what? There's a lot of people out there right now who are trying this. You get over into the right-hand lane, you find a lot of friends going 60 miles an hour. Driving through L.A., it was amazing to see how many people were going about 60 miles an hour. It was as if people are getting the message. And here's the bottom line. 60 miles per hour is easy to drive at. It seems like a more human speed. There were stretches of the road where pretty much everyone was going about 60 miles an hour or so, and it was almost like it was a bunch of friends traveling along. It was so much easier. So if you want to save some money, slow down. Try it yourself on any kind of extended journey, maybe 60 miles or 40 miles. Fill up, top it up, drive normally. When you get to your destination, fill up, top it up, and then drive at 60 miles an hour on the way back. Find out what happens. I think you may be amazed. So that's my tip for the week. Give it a try. Drive 60 miles an hour. Now let's get into our feature for the day, which is the effect that flooding has on wildlife. A number of years back, I was a naturalist in a state park in Minnesota, St. Croix State Park, and we went through a terrific week of rains, and the rains collected in the rivers as they should, and the rivers swelled and created flooding in the middle of summer, actually late summer. And I'd heard that actually there had been some campers who were camping along a river in a little county park in their tents, and the waters rose so quickly in the middle of the night that they had been swept away. 
And I heard the story, and so I was amazed that it, that the waters could come up so quickly. So in the middle of the night, I headed out to to check out the location of that flood. It was right by a bridge that crossed over the river. And by the time I got there, down below at the bridge level, there were all sorts of red and flashing lights, and they didn't want people to head down the slope down to the river bottom. I was in my vehicle. It was raining, and my lights shone along the highway down to the scene below, and something caught my eye. I couldn't quite make out what it was, but it was as if the the roadway was shimmering. It was just like it was organic diamonds. And I, I thought, what in the world is that? I'd never seen this before. So I got out of my car and took a close look, and it turned out that it was a worm stampede. Worms by the millions running as fast as they could up the roadway to escape the flood. I'd never seen anything like that. And that inspires actually today's story, which is what other creatures are affected by this, and how are they affected, and how do they deal with this flooding? So that's what we look at now. We start out by focusing on the effect that flooding has on the aquatic creatures, those animals who like water. Let's find out. With all the flooding that is devastating the Midwest and now moving all the way down, it's going to continue its way down the Mississippi and and expanding out. We've seen this before. Every time we see these floods, it's extraordinary to try to figure out how in the world people are supposed to cope. But there's obviously another side to this. Huge areas are inundated with water, and that water can stick around sometimes for a few days, sometimes for months, as it has in the past. And I was curious what happens to the wildlife, the myriads of forms, particularly in the Midwestern zones like that, that are impacted by these floods. And to learn more about this, we're going to now talk with Dr. Greg Sass, who's the director of the Illinois River Biological Station. Uh, in Illinois. Dr. Sass, welcome to the Wild Side News. Thank you very much, Sydney. Why don't you give us a brief overview of what the River Biological Station is doing? Uh, the Illinois River Biological Station is a field station of the Illinois Natural History Survey. Our main purpose, of the, uh, the reason for our being, is we monitor an 80-mile stretch of the uh, Illinois River from Peoria down to Beardstown. Most of our monitoring is related to the fish populations and water quality. Uh, we're charged with this uh, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers because there's navigation on the Illinois River and the upper Mississippi River system. Uh, we want to make sure that the natural resources aren't being hurt in any way, and that's the real purpose of our monitoring. Uh, we also do a lot of other independent projects uh, related to fish and water quality, uh, restoration ecology, and just aquatic ecology in general. Well, have you had a chance to actually witness some floods? Absolutely, especially the one that's going on right now. Uh, with the Illinois River, we jumped up on this latest flood about two weeks ago by about eight feet, uh, which isn't super unusual for the lower Illinois River, uh, but I was actually just down in the Alden area and witnessed some of the uh, the flooding firsthand uh, this past Friday night. I know that your specialization is aquatic. Just briefly, though, before we get into your area, what happens to the, the observable wildlife? Any stories you can share? Uh, this is really the natural state of things. Maybe not the 500-year floods, the 100-year floods that we're seeing, uh, but before uh, commercial navigation and much of the altering of, of large river systems, uh, this annual flood pulse was a annual occurrence, uh, particularly a little bit earlier in the springtime. Uh, being this a little bit later, um, it's a little bit different. So wildlife is actually pretty adapted to these sorts of changes on an annual basis, and many of the species, uh, such as fish, for example, are adapted to this, that they need those areas to increase the amount of food that's available to them, also for spawning habitat. Um, other organisms, I've talked to some of the herpetologists that uh, some of the frogs should do very well, particularly tree frogs, because they have a lot more available habitat with water than they would without flooding. 
So many of the creatures actually do really well. In the case of fish, the 93 and 95 floods that occurred on the Illinois River were actually some of our largest uh, year classes of many of the fish species that we haven't seen since that time. So uh, for the native fishes, this might be a, a pretty important flood. This actually, at least for a period of time, potentially expands their base, their, the extent of their populations? Uh, that's absolutely right. So if we think about a river that's normally a conduit of water uh, that's not attached to its flood plain in many cases, there's an awful lot of area that fish and other uh, wildlife cannot access. So during these floods, they have a lot more available habitat, not only to feed, uh, but also to spawn and reproduce. Now, following the flood as it recedes, I'm just curious, particularly about the fish, to what degree do they die off or, or do they get back into the main channel? Um, it depends if it's an isolated backwater system or not. In the case of a situation where a levee is topped, for example, and water gets into a farm field, let's say, uh, that water may be trapped there for two to three years, depending on um, the underlying water table. In many of our systems, both in the Mississippi and the Illinois River, when water gets in, it can also either be pumped back out or just naturally released back into the river. So it really depends on whether it's an isolated backwater or one that's still connected to the river uh, during the flood. Now, do fish sort of naturally flow into those areas then? To what degree is that evidenced? Um, it's very evident, especially right now. Like I said, many of the fishes are adapted to that flood pulse, so they move into areas where they're ex- able to exploit new sources of food. Uh, they're able to um, increase their spawning habitat. They take care of that, and then as the water recedes, usually their juveniles are already produced. They're up in the water column, and they go and p- come back out into the river to feed on the resources that are in the main stem part of the river. As you look out throughout the region there, tell us about this particular flood and, and how it appears to you and what people are talking about. Uh, a couple of the big things for around here, uh, obviously Asian carp, both the silver and bighead carp, are uh, invasive species in the Illinois River that are causing a lot of problems. Uh, they're getting ever closer to Lake Michigan, the electric barrier uh, south of Chicago. Uh, the flood pulse triggers their spawning event, and right now there's literally billions of young-of-the-year Asian carp out there in this last, last fall, flood pulse. So that's obviously concerning, given that their abundances are really high right now. Um, other people here are talking about uh, waterfall food, for example. So typically the river uh, gets lower throughout the summer, and the, the backwaters and wetlands will dry out, producing a lot of moist soil vegetation, uh, which is very good duck food, particularly in the fall when they're making their migrations. Uh, There's a little flood pulse typically in the fall that fills those areas up and makes them accessible to ducks and they're feeding. Uh, So right now there's a little bit of concern about uh, whether the moist soil vegetation will come up or not if this river stays high throughout the entire summer. Just curious, in in your field and uh, amongst your colleagues, uh, to what degree people are suggesting that perhaps these types of erratic flooding may be changing into the future here, perhaps because of uh, global warming or whatever? Uh, Global climate change is definitely predicting uh, what we're seeing right now, basically just uh, stronger storms, uh, more precipitation. Uh, just in the past couple of years throughout the Midwest, I think that's become pretty evident. Uh, however, uh, from a wildlife perspective, in other places it's also getting drier. So we definitely might be seeing some changes, whether it's a, a blip on the radar or just a, a short cycle. We can't say for sure, but you know, the past couple of years and some of these floods and the timing of the floods are definitely different than uh, what we've noticed uh, throughout history in the hydrograph. I know from my perspective, because I follow these types of things I have all my life, it feels as if this seems to be a change, but perhaps it's just better coverage, much more available coverage on the spot, you know, within minutes mm-hmm. of these events. Anything uh, you can share about that? It's so hard to say because climate's been changing at different time scales for such a long period of time, and obviously the the past couple hundred years, I guess, as far as carbon dioxide and methane production has gone up uh, to scales that, and, and quick, more quickly than we've seen. Uh, so it is still difficult to say, but it definitely seems that 
Um, in particular, like in our history here over 20 years, we've seen um, pretty large increases in average water temperature throughout the course of the year mm-hmm. in the river that we've monitored, um, like I said, over the past 20 years. And so uh, we also know over the past 150 years that ice on dates and uh, ice off dates in the northern hemisphere, ice on has been later and ice off has been earlier. Mm-hmm. So uh, those would be suggestive of global climate change. It's always difficult to predict on a year-to-year basis what you're going to get, but it seems like if global climate changing is occurred, occurring, what the predictions are is just kind of more extreme events like the ones we're seeing right now. I use the term global weirding. And, and I, think <laughs> yeah. it, I think it actually is a better, better way to look at it. It, it. it definitely could be. It just seems like things may be a little bit more variable and less predictable now than they may have been even 20 years ago. Well, Dr. Greg Sass, I know you're busy. Uh, why don't you give us a website so that people can find you? Uh, sure, www www.inhs.uiuc.edu. Thanks a lot. Get back to the field now and figure out what's going on out there. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. Bye. Right. Bye-bye. But what about the creatures who have to pick up and run to get out of the way of the flood waters? In other words, mammals like us. How does flooding affect them? We find out now. Focusing on the massive flooding that, once again, is uh, heading down the major river systems of Mississippi and its tributaries along the Midwest, uh, I want to focus now on what happens to the untold millions and millions of small creatures, particularly the mammals, that um, you know, have to run for their lives or something uh, when these floodwaters come in. And someone who has had some experience with the researching this is Dr. Kenneth Wilson. He's a professor and department head at the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the Wild Side News. Oh, thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here, sir. I'm a biologist myself. I always have wished that I could be out in the field. I can't think of anything more enjoyable. Unfortunately, that's not what I'm doing, although I enjoy what I am doing. But what's your, what is your passion in terms of your work? Oh, I, I'm really looking at a lot of the impacts that humans have on wild species. I've worked quite a bit with rodents, um, and now I'm also working with uh, uh, black bear populations with uh, the Colorado Division of Wildlife and USDA trying to understand how they move through urban areas. And so that uh, that right now is a is a huge passion in, in terms of the time I have to to get out. But mostly the students have the fun. Just because you brought that up, I am just curious. It's been my impression that the encounters between urban populations or suburban populations and some of these larger mammalian species, cougars, uh, bears, is increasing. Anything to share about what your thoughts are on that? Uh, th- there does seem to be uh, uh, an increase in the number of interactions. I don't think it's the wildlife changing their behavior. I think it's we have larger populations of humans moving into their habitat. So in Colorado, where I live, more people are, are want to live in a home that has a few acres, and we're really displacing these animals. We have to learn to live with them if we want them around. Because I don't have to sign my name to my ideas, my theory about this is one of the contributing factors is that people are a little more friendly towards animals in their in their zones, whereas before these animals were just shot almost on the spot, there's a little more tolerance, a little more interest in perhaps allowing them to be there. But that's just my idea. Certainly, I think that may uh, be a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we used to hunt a lot of the animals that, that come into the different areas we have, or in some cases... We just didn't tolerate them, such as mountain lions. Uh, black bears were, were more of a game species, but at the same time, we certainly wouldn't tolerate black bears coming into a chicken coop. But now we, we are. 
we, we like them around. We like to see them at the right distance. We're all becoming little environmentalists and ecologists, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, listen, let's get on to our topic today. You have had experience with uh, some of your, uh, particularly your graduate students, uh, have been out in the field researching what happens to these small creatures. Why don't you give us a, a concept of, as the flood starts coming in, give us a perspective on the nature of the wildlife that's most dramatically impacted. Obviously, the larger the deer and bear and others just take, they run. But uh, some creatures don't have that option. But who, who's impacted? Well, what we found, we were looking at a, a system, the Yampa River and the Green River in Colorado, is that uh, even though there are animals that lived right adjacent to the river, and most of the rivers in the Colorado River system don't flood a lot, and, and even what's flooding now through the Mississippi drain, drainage of Missouri, they don't have the traditional uh, natural flooding uh, year to year. Some of them close to the areas immediately adjacent, uh, we found that they actually did die. Uh, they did not escape the floodwaters, and, and those that were burrowing died in their burrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were looking at uh, primarily a species of kangaroo rat. Other species that were more mobile were able to move away and come back. In this case, where you have what looks like some, some sort of 100-year flood, I suspect quite a few more do succumb to the floodwaters if they don't have time to escape it. No different than, than the humans that uh, we've seen, which could be quite tragic. Of course, the bottom line is this has been going on for millennia, and so these animals have adapted, obviously, because uh, they come back. What do they do? Uh, you know, those who try to escape, what are, they, what are their options? Yeah, if we think of the animals we might see in our house, the little little uh, musculus, the, the house mouse, or uh, a black rat or roof rat, ratus ratus, those sorts of things. There are a lot of similar small mammals, uh, voles, uh, deer mice species, and many of them are, are pretty good swimmers, one. So they're going to swim around till they find uh, some refugia, and that could be a log going uh, moving along in the water or top of a house, a tree. Uh, a bush if it's the beginning stages of the floods. And so they'll they'll hang out uh, and and spend the, the two or three days or even weeks uh, trying to survive uh, using those methods and then move back into the areas they were flooded out from. I'm sure a lot are swept into a completely different habitat, so they mm-hmm. end up redistributing themselves. I have watched uh, some of these little creatures swimming, and uh, rats, for example, and they don't have any problem with that. No. They handle it very, very well. Yeah, I think they're they're much 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 better than we do. But you think of a lot of wild animals; they they seem to to do quite well in water, even if it isn't something they they do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I've often imagined at the edges of the water, populations of these animals just sort of watching and wondering, <laughs> when do I get a chance to go back home? Well, let's talk about going back home. When they go back, it's a in many cases it's a very different environment. A lot of sediment and a lot of the you know a lot of the vegetation is gone. What happens after that? Yeah, and. And in the the system we were looking at, it was the scouring that sort of developed the habitat. Kangaroo rats were living directly near the river because it was nice and sandy. And the human regulation of dams was actually allowing uh, more grasses and shrubs to move in. And so in some cases, you might find some species that uh, like this scouring that occurred, more bare ground. And in other cases, it may be a little bit tough to make an existence because you've got more bare ground, uh, you've got more debris, the plants may not respond in the same sort of way they, they would uh, naturally, sort of like uh, the farmers now talking about can they get their crops out. Well, certainly some of the plants aren't used to this kind of flooding, and so the, the seed source may be lacking to some degree for a while. 
but they slowly will rebound in most of these areas. It just may take a while. Others may respond rapidly to the changes that occur. Uh, unfortunately, oftentimes some of them are the introduced species, like uh, rats and mice, that can adapt quite well to some of the human changes that we do to the landscape. Any idea on how long it takes to reestablish a healthy population? Of course, it varies all the, all over the place, but I'm just curious. If you check back a couple of years later, and they're everywhere. Yeah, I, for, for rodents, because they have such a, a, a rapid life cycle and, and uh, short-term gestation periods, uh, it doesn't take long at all. I mean, I would think, one, that here we are in spring with this sort of flood, those that get there, the competition is less, potentially. Once the seeds do get there and they'll have all this moisture to develop some hardy uh, seed crops, if they can survive off of that, the insects, uh, many of the uh, small mammals and rodents are, are sort of omnivores to some degree. Uh, they'll feed on uh, vegetation, but they'll also feed on insects. And so I think they could do quite well. And then uh, if it's a warmer, warmer climate in the Midwest, uh, they could still have a couple of birth cycles before the winter comes on. So I, I don't think it'll be very long at all. I think uh, there may be other cycles that are playing year to year that will have an effect on their population more than this flood. Now, there may be some species, uh, something like a gopher, who lives in a burrow, and it may take a long time for the water table to go down, longer than they'd have to deal with. They certainly also can swim and will find refugia, but that may put more of a damper on, on something like a pocket gopher than it will on a on a uh, something like a, a mouse or rat that runs and lives more on the surface. Miles Falk, I think, was a graduate student uh, who um, who did some research on this, and it seems to me as if he indicated, and I didn't do a deep read of his paper, but that interestingly enough, uh, populations that are adjoining these areas really aren't all that dramatically impacted. You'd sort of have the sense that all of these uh, cousins and and uncles, you know, would uh, take over and affect them, but apparently it doesn't have that much of an effect. Yeah, and and I think in in our system uh, the dynamics were very. This was sort of a natural flooding, and, and the river would would expand and and certainly go up the bank, and it might in a flat area move out about a quarter of a mile away. But in many cases, you're talking hundreds of yards. Whereas now we've had this huge flood, and it's flooding you know miles away from the river, and so uh, maybe some of those that do live in that floodplain though are the ones that are going to spread out, maybe they're a little more adapted to this sort of uh, a change and sort of hanging out in a tree is not such a big deal. On the other hand, if you live a mile away, uh, it's got to be something that uh, you haven't seen in your lifetime. Fascinating work. Do you enjoy your work? Oh, I do. Students that you're working with these days, uh, how are they approaching all this? Is there any any changes in sort of their desire to to learn about the, the natural world? Oh, I, I think there's there's still a huge, huge desire to understand the natural world. And so I think from a wildlife and conservation biology and fishery biology point of view, we have some of the best students in the world. They have a, a, a large passion for maintaining our, our ecosystems and making sure that they exist for a long time. Mm. And, and at the same time, you know, the competing risks sort of of life are very different. You know, uh, computers and games and and, and not as many people are going in the out of doors, and, and there's been a change. But there still is, is just a, 
a large desire to understand what's happening with wild populations. We're going to have to have a lot more educated people doing real field research into the future here to figure out the trends and, and how to deal with that. Dr. Kenneth Wilson, I want to thank you for jo- joining us here on the Wild Side News. Well, I'll let you get back to your studies and work. Oh, my pleasure, Cindy. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Now there ain't no more higher ground As far as I can see My heart begins to pound You know it's getting tough to breathe Here comes the water Should I struggle or give in? All of you listeners out there can become field biologists by just opening up your eyes now, those of you in these flood-ravaged areas, to take note of, of unusual occurrences of animal life. To what degree are they in trees or on the edges of these rivers? Or what is happening? What happens when all sorts of rabbits are forced to, to head on out? I don't have the answer to that, but I certainly would love to hear from you. If you have any observations about uh, wildlife and its response to floods, I'd love to have you contact me. Send me an email, and you can do so by going to wildsidenews at cox.net. That's W-I-L-D-S-I-D-E-N-E-W-S at C-O-X dot N-E-T. Let me know. Love to hear from you. Coming up, we change our focus now to after the deluge. As the summer heats up, how does wildlife deal with the heat? And your voice of the year continues here on the Wild Side. Yeah. 